Our first reading this evening comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or worshipped, so that he sets himself upon God's te- up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that serve, that li- serve the lie, and all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will not believe the lie, so that they will believe the lie, and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. Ryan's going to come and bring us a couple of stories from Daniel that you might not have heard of before because they come from the Apocrypha. Bell and the Dragon. That's quite a long one. <clears throat> when King Estagisis was laid to rest with his ancestors, Cyrus the Persian succeeded to his uh, kingdom. Daniel was the companion of the king and was the most honoured of all his friends. Now the Babylonians had an idol called Bell, and every day they provided for it 12 bushels of choice flour and 40 sheep and six measures of wine. The king revered, uh, revered it and went every day to worship it, but Daniel worshipped his own god. So the king said to him, Why do you not worship Bell? He answered, Because I do not revere idols made with hands, but the living God who created heaven and earth and has dominion over all living creatures. The king said to him, Do you not think that Bell is a living god? Do you not see how much he eats and drinks every day? And Daniel laughed and said, Do not be deceived, O king, for this thing is only clay inside and bronze outside, and it never ate or drank anything. Then the king was angry and called the priests of Baal and said to them, If you do not tell me who is eating these provisions, you shall die. But if you prove that Baal is eating them, Daniel shall die, because he has spoken blasphemy against Baal. Daniel said to the king, Let it be done as you have said. Now there were 70 priests of Bel, besides their wives and children. So the king went with Daniel into the temple of Bel. The priests of Bel said, See, we are now going outside. You yourself, O king, set out the food and prepare the wine, and shut the door and seal it with your signet. When you return in the morning, if you do not find that Bel has eaten at all, we will die. Otherwise Daniel will, who is telling lies about us. They were unconcerned, for beneath the table they had made a hidden entrance through which they used to go in regularly and consume the provisions. After they had gone out, the king set out the food for Bel. Then Daniel ordered his servants to bring ashes, and they scattered them throughout the whole temple in the presence of the king alone. 
Then they went out, shut the door, and sealed it with the king's signet, and departed. During the night, the priests came as usual with their wives and children, and they ate and drank everything. Early in the morning, the king rose and came, uh, uh, and came, and Daniel with him. The king said, Are the seals unbroken, Daniel? He answered, They are unbroken, O king. As soon as the doors were opened, the king looked at the table and shouted in a loud voice, You are great, O Bel, and in you there is no deceit at all. But Daniel laughed and restrained the king from going in. Look at the floor, he said, and notice whose footprints these are. The king said, I see the footprints of men and women and children. Then the king was enraged, and he arrested the priests and their wives and children. They showed him the secret doors through which they had used to enter and consume what was on the table. Therefore, the kings put them to death and gave Bel over to Daniel, who destroyed it and his temple. Now in that place there was a great dragon, which the Babylonians revered. The king said to Daniel, you cannot deny that this is a living God, so worship him. Daniel said, I worship the Lord my God, for he is the living God. But give me permission, O king, and I will kill the dragon without sword or club. The king said, I give you permission. Then Daniel took pitch, fat, and hair, and boiled them together and made cakes, which he fed to the dragon. The dragon ate them and burst open. Then Daniel said, See what you have been worshipping. When the Babylonians heard about it, they were very indignant and conspired against the king, saying, The king has become a Jew. He has destroyed Bel and killed the dragon and slaughtered the priests. Going to the king, they said, Hand Daniel over to us, or else we will kill you and your household. The king saw that they were pressing him hard, and under compulsion, he handed Daniel over to them. They threw Daniel into the lion's den, and he was there for six days. There were seven lions in the den, and every day they had been given two human bodies and two sheep, but now they were given nothing so that they would devour Daniel. Now the prophet Habakkuk was in Judea, and he had made a stew and had broken bread into a bowl and was going to the field to take it to the reapers. But the angel of the Lord said to Habakkuk, Take the food that you have to Babylon, to Daniel in the lion's den. Habakkuk said, Sir, I have never seen Babylon, and I know nothing about the den. Then the angel of the Lord took him by the crown of his head and carried him by his hair with the speed of the wind. He set him down in Babylon right over the den. Then Habakkuk shouted, Daniel, Daniel, take the food that God has sent you. Daniel said, You have remembered me, O God, and have not forsaken those who love you. So Daniel got up and ate, and the angel of God immediately returned Habakkuk to his own place. On the seventh day the king came to mourn for Daniel. When he came to the den, he looked in, and there sat Daniel. The king shouted with a loud voice, You are great, O Lord, the God of Daniel, and there is no other besides you. Then he pulled Daniel out and threw into the den those who had attempted his destruction, and they were instantly eaten before his eyes. So by special request tonight, we have a sermon on Bell and the Dragon, the first and probably the last time I will ever preach on this passage. But there you go, a consortium comprising my son, Ben, Tom and Ryan, bid for me to preach a sermon of their choice. Let me clarify, this was in order to raise money for the Cambodian Hope Organisation. I don't usually offer sermons for sale, but it was agreed that this would be a good thing to do to raise money for this purpose. For those of you who are squeamish about the idea of me preaching on a passage from the Apocrypha, however, I am also subtly and deviously tying in a bit of this sermon to the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians on the grounds that both books make use of the book of Daniel in the Old Testament and I hope you still feel you are getting your money's worth, gentlemen. 
Actually, it's only a couple of hundred years ago that most Bibles started leaving out the 14 or 15 books that comprise what we know as the Old Testament Apocrypha. Basically, this is a collection of Jewish religious writings that didn't make it into what we know as the Old Testament. Because at the time when the Jews were trying to decide which books were inspired by the Holy Spirit, they decided that a convenient rule of thumb was that the Holy Spirit didn't speak in Greek. Holy Spirit only spoke in Hebrew or Aramaic as the holy languages of God's people. And so any books that were written in Greek were out. So out went the books that we now know as the Apocrypha. And these were 1 Esdras, which is an alternative version of the Hebrew book of Ezra. There is the romantic tale of Tobit. There is the historic story of Judith. There are six additional bits that were added into the book of Esther. There is the wisdom of Solomon and the wisdom of Jesus, the son of Sirach, which is confusingly known as Ecclesiasticus and therefore frequently confused with the biblical book of Ecclesiastes. There is a prophecy written in the name of Baruch, who was Jeremiah's scribe. There is also a letter purportedly written by Jeremiah. There are various additions to the book of Daniel and the historical books of 1 and 2 Maccabees. If you want to know what happened in the period between the Old and the New Testament from a historical point of view, these are the books to read. These are all books that were in the original Greek version of the Jewish Testament, commonly known as the Septuagint, so-called because tradition has it that 70 uh, scholars sat down and translated it over 70 days, and they all came out with exactly the same translation. But there are other books that find their ways into collections. Included in the Apocrypha, you get two Esdras, three Maccabees, four Maccabees, a prayer attributed to the wicked king Manasseh, and Psalm 151. Beyond that, you get books that are sometimes included in the Apocrypha, but more normally classified in what's known as the Pseudepigrapha. And these are big enough to fill two weighty volumes, things like the Psalms of Solomon, the books of Enoch, more books of Baruch, Jubilees, the Testaments of the Twelve Patriarchs of Abraham, Adam, Moses, and so on. And apparently there are two brand new volumes of Pseudepigrapha published this year, including texts that have recently been discovered. It is a burgeoning industry for biblical scholars. But the Christians, when they read the scriptures, tended not to read them in Hebrew or Aramaic, they read them in Greek. And so they continued to use the Apocrypha books quite happily after the Jews kicked them out. It was in 382 that questions started to be raised when the scholar Jerome set about translating the Old Testament into Latin. And he decided that the Hebrew books were actually far more reliable than the Greek ones, and that put a question mark against their validity. Notwithstanding that, the apocryphal texts continued to be generally accepted in Christian circles until the time of the Reformation, when people for the first time began to read these texts in the original languages rather than just in Jerome's Latin translation. So Calvin dismissed them altogether as having no spiritual value whatsoever, whereas Luther and his followers were a bit more sympathetic. The study of the apocrypha was encouraged. The apocryphal books are still included in Bibles in the Catholic and Orthodox churches, and even in the Church of England, I'm told, it is required for them to be included in any edition of the Bible authorised for public worship, though the CV insists that they cannot be used to prove any point of doctrine. Now, the combined tale of Bell and the Dragon that Ryan read to us is one of four additions to the book of Daniel. 
The first, which is often found at the beginning of the book, is the tale of, tale of Susanna, where Daniel catches out a couple of lecherous Jewish elders who want a girl called Susanna to have sex with them. And when she refuses, they falsely accuse her of having had sex with somebody else. They saw her in the garden with this other man. Daniel exposes their dishonesty by interviewing them separately and establishing that their stories don't add up. One says he saw her under this tree, the other says he saw her under that tree. They were clearly making the tale up. Then if you know the book of Daniel, you know that his three friends are thrown into the blazing fiery furnace for not worshipping Nebuchadnezzar's statue. The Apocrypha contains a prayer spoken by Azariah, one of the three, an additional passage explaining what the angel who was with them in the furnace did while he was there, and also a song sung by the three on that particular occasion. And then the fourth addition to the book of Daniel is the twin story of Bel and the dragon, which is usually tacked onto the end of the book of Daniel, making it either 13 or 14 chapters long, depending which version you are reading in the Greek. And you heard the story. Cyrus, the conqueror of Babylon, naively supposes that the god Bel must be real. Since every night the idol consumes huge quantities of food, 400 litres of fine flour, 40 sheep, 50 gallons of wine every single night are put in front of the idol in the morning, it's gone. No wonder the king worshipped it every day. An idol with that appetite you really have to stay on the right side of it. Britannial just laughs when he's asked why he doesn't worship this magnificent god. I only worship the living God who made heaven and earth, he says. I will prove to you, your majesty, that this king is just made of clay inside and bronze outside. So one night they put the food in front of the idol as normal, but before they seal the doors, they secretly sprinkle the floor with ashes. What the king doesn't know is that there is a trap door into the chamber, and every night the priests and their families would come up and gorge themselves on the food offered to Baal. 70 priests and their families, 40 sheep a night, 50 gallons of wine. That is a prodigious amount to consume, isn't it? And the king, the following morning, comes and opens the door, sees the food gone, his first thought is, the the idol must be real. And Daniel says, no, look, remember, we sprinkled ashes on the floor, didn't we? Look, look at the footprints. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can see footprints on the floor of men and, and women of children, and the penny drops. The priests are summoned, they confess it all, no mercy is shown to them, they are immediately executed. The story of the dragon is in a similar vein. Again, you know, the king says, why don't you worship this magnificent idol? And Daniel says, it's a load of rubbish, I'll prove it to you. Uh, It is not so well told as the story of Bel. Some people have dismissed it as being preposterous and grotesque. Daniel destroys this idol in the shape of a serpent by feeding it cakes made of tar and fat and hair, which are pretty indigestible and make the dragon's stomach explode. The Babylonians are so incensed by this that they have the king throw Daniel into the lion's den. This is obviously cribbed from the original book of Daniel, where Daniel spends some time in the lion's den. But the added detail is thrown in that these lions eat two people and two sheep every day. And for the six days that Daniel is in the the den with them, they are giving nothing else to eat so that they will devour him. So they were pretty hungry. And after six days, so was was Daniel. But Daniel was all right because the prophet Habakkuk is flown over to Babylon by special delivery by an angel who takes him by the crown of his head and holds onto his hair and takes him there so that he can take the meal he's prepared for the people harvesting and give it to Daniel. That is a a mode of transport taken from the book of Ezekiel. 
where in Ezekiel, in his vision, he's taken up by his hair and carried to, to Jerusalem, where all the exiles, and he can see precisely what is going on. But this is real. The prophet Habakkuk isn't taken there as vision. He's taken there physically with the food so that he can feed Daniel in the lion's den. So Daniel, rather like the prophet Elijah, gets his food specially prepared and delivered for him. But the lions still go hungry. So after six days, the people who had accused Daniel are thrown into their den in his place and are instantly devoured. Habakkuk gets a look in because in the original Greek text, this story is identified as originating with the prophecy of Habakkuk for some obscure reason. But the story of dragon and its destruction is a kind of pastiche of Old Testament illusions cobbled together in a fairly unconvincing fashion. But you can see they get that, this bit from there, that bit from there, that bit from somewhere else, and all these details are bundled together to make another story. In these stories, then, Daniel acts as a kind of primitive Jonathan Creek. He exposes the tricks of the trade. People who are taken and say, well, this, this, is, this must be magic, this must be real, this must be some kind of spiritual force at work. He says, well, actually, it's rubbish. I will show you how it's been done. And I will expose the machinations of people who are making their living out of this kind of show. And the point is that idols are false. You've got to be really stupid, as stupid as King Cyrus, in fact, to worship an idol and believe that there could be any substance or reality to it whatsoever. Whereas the living God, the God who made heaven and earth, he does not forsake those who love him, and he takes good care of his servant. This is polemical literature. This is satire designed to belittle those who engage in idol worship and boost the confidence of those who are under pressure, perhaps, to to step aside from worshipping the true God. Idolatry is a sham perpetuated by charlatans. The only sensible thing to do is to worship the living God because he made heaven and earth. And as Daniel's experience in the lions then shows, the Lord does not forsake those who love him. But the book of Daniel in the Old Testament was not just the inspiration for edifying stories like these. The book of Daniel, also the original one, also makes repeated references to a fearless, clever ruler who would oppose God and oppress his people for a limited period of time, time, causing fearful destruction in the process. He would destroy Jerusalem and the sanctuary and set up in their place something called the abomination of desolation. He would even consider himself to be greater than any god. He would utter blasphemies against the god of gods, but in the end he would be destroyed. Historians rightly associate this figure in the book of Daniel with the Syrian king Antiochus IV, and you can read about him in 1 and 4 Maccabees. In the 2nd century BC, he tried to stamp out Judaism by forcing people to eat pork. And many of them refused, even at the cost of being tortured and flayed alive. Some fairly gruesome torture passages in those books. Until Judas Maccabeus and his family instigated a successful rebellion against him. Fast forward 200 years to the time of the early church. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that that the various books that Daniel wrote and left behind were still being read in the late 1st century A.D., It was believed that Daniel conversed with God, for it says he did not only prophesy future events, as did the other prophets, but he also determined the time of their accomplishment. And so from that day to this, Josephus says, Daniel has been, well, from that day to this, Daniel has been an indispensable book for those trying to calculate the date of the end of the world. 
The New Testament makes it clear that this is a pointless exercise. There is no point in trying, poring over the book of Daniel, looking at the visions, working out the numbers, trying to figure out that this is the date on which Jesus will return and we can figure it out, it is this particular date because it all makes sense if you put this interpretation on what Daniel says. The New Testament says it's a complete waste of time, hasn't stopped people trying to do it and continuing to do it today. But nevertheless... Out of the book of Daniel, there are details that do apply to the end times. So from the figure of Antiochus IV, as he is portrayed in the book of Daniel, you get the idea of a figure of the Antichrist, who will oppose God's people at the end of time, who will represent the final upheaval of rebellion against God before Jesus comes to sort things out. So in Mark and Matthew, Jesus himself warns his disciples to keep an eye open for for the abomination of desolation, which is what this ruler in the book of Daniel would set up in the temple. That would be one of the signs of the end, Jesus said. And 2 Thessalonians also draws on Daniel for its picture of the man of lawlessness, the man who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship and takes his seat in the temple of the God, declaring himself to be God. He will use the power of Satan to produce deceptive signs and wonders and to lead astray all those who are doomed to destruction because they do not love the truth. This is the end time figure opposed to God. And various people have been candidates for this. Nero was deemed to be the Antichrist. It was thought at one time it must be a Jewish figure who would be the Antichrist. The Pope in some circles has long been targeted as the idea of the Antichrist. All sorts of ideas about who this might be, but it is based on this figure in the book of Daniel. And in 2 Thessalonians, it says that this figure will use the power of Satan to produce deceptive signs and wonders to lead astray all those who are doomed to destruction because they do not love the truth. It's not clear whether the miracles this figure performs are false because they deceive people, or whether the miracles are false because they originate with Satan, or whether the miracles are false because they are just all smokes and mirrors and trickery, the kind of thing that Daniel exposes in the story of Bell and the dragon. But 2 Thessalonians sounds a very different note to Bell and the dragon. You don't have to be really stupid to believe in this character and what he does. This is a really dangerous, powerful figure who is to be feared rather than mocked. And those who are taken in by him are doomed to destruction because they refuse to believe the truth. Daniel in Battle of the Dragon is a bit cocky. All all this kind of stuff about idols is ridiculous. You've got to be stupid to believe that. Paul in the New Testament is altogether a bit more ambivalent about idol worship. In Corinth, there were those who said it's a load of rubbish. We've got knowledge, we understand that an idol is nothing, so we can do what we like. We can go into an idol's temple and do whatever we like there with impunity because we don't believe anything about this kind of stuff. He says, well, Paul says, well, I don't want to disagree with you, but... Recognise that if you go into an idol's temple and you engage in worship offered to idols, then you are, you are engaging in stuff that really has more to do with demons than it has to do with Jesus. And that, that is not appropriate at all. And for Paul, the demonic world was something real and dangerous and to be avoided. And for him, it's likely he didn't just see idols as, as man-made objects with no power in them at all, but behind them... He saw things like the the principalities and powers and and things which actually had the potential to enslave people and to damage their lives. 
So Paul says, actually have nothing whatsoever to do with this kind of stuff. And what you have in, in Bell and the Dragon is, is one attitude that is quite cerebral and says, it's, it's a load of rubbish. You know, you could dismiss it and laugh at it because there's nothing there. Paul is altogether a little bit more cautious. Yes, these are just man-made objects, but what is behind them? You know, where does the power to, to create these miracles and signs and wonders that are counterfeit and lead people astray, where does that come from? Ultimately, it comes from Satan, and he has a far more cautious view of the spiritual world. So we need to be careful when it comes to our thing, attitude to things like horoscopes and fortune tellers and Ouija boards and stuff like that. Because we can say, yes, it's a load of rubbish. And if you think it's a load of rubbish, that's fine, but have nothing to do with it. What you don't do is say it's a load of rubbish, therefore I can read it and experiment it with impunity, because that's not how it works. Because if we give credence to these things, then we invite them to have a degree of power and influence over our lives. And they are best avoided for us as Christians. The Apocrypha dismisses idolatry as a confidence trick played on gullible idiots. Paul is altogether more cautious. Have nothing to do with idol worship, because there can be real spiritual powers at work there. Powers which manifest themselves in their strongest, most dangerous form in this figure of the Antichrist, who will oppose God and totally deceive those who refuse to love the truth and so be saved. You may be convinced that you know the truth. Brilliant. Give others who disagree with you a healthy degree of respect. Don't mock them. Don't belittle them. Don't think in their minds it's really stupid to believe stuff like that. Because you've not stood in their shoes and you don't know where they're coming from. If you don't belittle them, then you will treat them with more respect. And that will perhaps enable them to listen to what you have to say and be more receptive to your sharing the truth with them as you see it. It would also, if you respect them, help you to avoid falling into the shallow sense of superiority encouraged by the stories, perhaps, of Bell and the dragon. It would also mean that you respect their views enough, actually, to avoid being drawn into them yourself unwittingly because you think it's a lot of rubbish and therefore there is no harm in it. Stand firm with what you know and what you believe. Hold on to the truth as it is given you in Jesus. Because it is by believing the truth, by being made holy by the Spirit, and staying the course to the end, that we will be saved.